Chapter 9 Just before sunset, with my camper safely stowed in the hotel's secure parking lot, and my backpack tossed on the bed of my room, I locked my door and headed downstairs. As I walked through the lobby and then through the crowded bar, I was wondering which of the two dozen people I passed might possibly know a half-German, middle-aged artist named Michael Bernhardt. I'd probably need to contact local folks, not tourists, businessmen, or government people. Outside the hotel, I walked past the curvaceous swimming pool without even glancing at the tourists. As I stood gazing across at the twin volcanoes, I noticed a guy in a casual suit with no tie, languidly lighting his cigarette. He glanced right at me and then quickly looked away. A few vacation couples were walking hand in hand, and some noisy German kids were trying to skip flat stones across the rough, wind-blown water down by the beach. Finally relaxing from the border drama, I found it hard to believe what I'd gone through at the border. Had they really not found the carving? There'd been a slightly bizarre quality to the sudden smoothness with which I'd made it out of there. And now, this guy in the suit with the cigarette, he was still hanging around, keeping a casual eye on me. The border cops could have put a GPS tracker on my camper and already located me at this hotel. I walked right past the guy and met his eye with no show of emotion on either side. Then I walked quickly back through the lobby outside along the driveway and parking lot, and started hiking the quarter mile or so up toward the town of Panahachel. The sunset walk took me past cottages with beautiful gardens and some bigger mansions as well. I took a couple of side streets, still dirt rather than tarmac, crossed the footbridge over the river, and felt my first real contact with the local natives. All along the river, they were gardening tiny plots of the lush flood zone, just like countless generations before them. They're mostly handmade, matte bamboo, adobe hovels. What a nasty-sounding term for such humble but homey places. Looked quite welcoming compared with the fenced Latino and gringo houses back across the river just a few blocks away. I finally came to the higher bridge and crossed back over to the unassuming main street of Panahachel. Lights were coming on. The town seemed a bit busier and the stores and cafes a bit snazzier than before. Tourist hangout spots had proliferated, but most of them were probably owned and run by locals. I walked past a young Indian couple wearing hand-woven wipiles and backstrap shorts and skirts, walking right alongside obvious tourists with backpacks. I felt pleased. The general feel of the place remained laid-back and local. The town's main street was only a few blocks long. I walked along the street, checking out places to eat and also looking for a bank. I'd need to get some local currency out of my credit card. I was feeling slightly unarmed without my cell phone. I was definitely way out on a limb down here. And then there he was again, 
that damn guy in the suit with a cigarette, tagging behind me. <sighs> Still not very sharp in my head, I picked up my pace, turned and went around a corner onto a quiet side street, then stopped halfway down the mostly deserted block, leaned against the wall, and waited. Sure enough, here came the guy fast around the corner. When he saw me, he tensed for just a telltale second, then came on walking toward me as if headed down that street on his own important business. He was maybe 35, Latino clothes and looks. I stepped right in front of him, ready to explode, assuming this was associated with the thugs who'd messed with me up at the border. Hey, hold it, I said in Spanish. Who are you? Why are you tailing me? The man hesitated a couple seconds too long before saying in a suave, condescending tone, I'm not tailing anyone. I am shopping. If you keep on following me, I told him, I'll report you. Report me to whom? There is no law that stops a Guatemalan citizen such as myself from walking the public streets. And just like that, he strutted off round the corner. I caught my breath and unclenched my fists. It was getting dark. Feeling entirely at a loss for what to do next, I stuck my nose into several cafes and bars, some with good vibes, some not so good, then ducked into one where I heard some rasty female folk blues coming through an open doorway. I found myself inside a big square room with pounded dirt floor, rustic walls made of bamboo and woven mats, a high, airy ceiling of hand-tied bamboo struts with half a dozen lazy fans twirling overhead, a serious young black woman with an exuberant mass of curly hair and a beat-up guitar, was singing some lonesome woman blues into a scratchy mic. Ah, just my speed. Taking a far corner table, I settled in and ordered, drank down the local beer and munched on some sort of tasty curry chicken, all the while watching people coming, going, wondering which of them might know El Maestro. Around the time I finished after-dinner coffee, the girl on stage started singing a whole string of old Tracy Chapman songs that my dad used to listen to. For a while, I just let go of ulterior motives and tuned into the strong voice, singing lyrics that made me want to join the revolution. The whole world's broke. It ain't worth fixin'. We gotta start all over and make a new beginning. Just then, somebody pulled one of the vacant chairs out from under my table and sat down across from me. I glanced over and found myself staring at a big bear of a man, barrel chest and head like some powerful bird. He sported long grain hair tied back, and his strong nose separated deep blue-green eyes that instantly reminded me of Mahi. They were now evaluating me intently from under a great fluff of peppery eyebrows. So you are here the man said gruffly in English. He turned to two women standing a bit awkwardly by the table, one of them about twenty and Asian, 
the other a regular-looking American in her forties. My students, Lashi and Michelle, he said. Please sit down, I offered. They sat, still not saying a word, their eyes looking around the room. So how was your drive down? Michael asked in a quiet, deep, not entirely friendly voice. A bit rocky, I said quietly, leaning forward to be heard over the vocal buzz in the cafe, making sure no one around us was paying attention to our conversation. Just before crossing the border, Mahi panicked and took off on foot, last I saw of her. Oh, damn, and please, no names. So, I don't know where she is. They held me at the border and roughed me up a bit. I don't know if they found anything, but there might be a GPS on my van. Which is where, he demanded. Down at the hotel. And there's definitely some guy, probably some government guy, who seems to be keeping an eye on me. Yeah, to be expected, he said. We can deal locally. But you lost her. That was not good. Hey, it wasn't my... No matter. You can now return to your hotel with Lashara here appearing as your new friend. Get your possessions from your room. You won't be returning. Casually drive off together in your car for a moonlit ride. Half an hour from here is a building up near Solola. Lashi knows how to find it. Once the piece is gone from the bus, the tracker will be of no concern to us. Everything will become clear up in Solola. Now, go, he said with a wave of his hand. I'll pay your bill. A short time later, I found myself walking with the young Oriental woman, side by side like young lovers, holding hands as Michael had directed, headed along the mostly deserted, occasionally lighted street, back toward the hotel. Her hand was firm and warm. She was shorter than me by about half a foot. I asked her where she was from. Originally, I was from the mountains, she said, in what was once called Burma. I am so pleased that you have arrived. How'd you find me? I asked. We have been awaiting you for several days, she said. And then tonight, Michael felt that something had happened and that you were in town. So you were out actively looking for me? How else would we have found you? We walked on in silence. I remembered holding Mahi's hand that same morning, walking along the river up in Chiapas after taking a dip, our bare feet plodding enjoyably in soft dust. The memory was strong. I pulled myself back into the present moment and continued the conversation with this other woman. So you're studying with Michael, I asked her. Studying, yes. Uh, what kind of studies? So, first the awakening of the high heart, attaining the spiritual fertility, increasing the passion, mastering the dying, and then the rising upward. Hmm, quite a curriculum. How long have you been studying with him? Three, perhaps four lifetimes. I am not yet certain. And there was not much I could say to that. A few minutes later, I got my backpack from the room, paid the bill, 
got my camper from the parking lot and drove with the Burmese woman out of town and back up that steep, narrow road all the way to the top of the crater. My mind was full of Mahalena. Her father hadn't been very friendly, but that was okay. Mahi was all I wanted. Solo Law was quiet, except for the one main street, and we turned down a side street, then spent several minutes taking left and right turns in mostly unlit back lanes, with Lashi on high alert, giving me curt instructions. There, drive in, she finally said, and I did as ordered, rolling to a stop in near darkness in a big tin warehouse of some sort, mostly empty from what I could see under the one high bulb up in the middle of the building. I got out quickly, half expecting Mahi to come running into my arms, even though I didn't think she could have beaten me here. I just urgently needed to be with her again. An old open jeep came roaring into the warehouse. Someone closed the rusty rolling door with a slam, and there was Michael in the jeep. But no Mahi. Instead, there were two guys who jumped out and climbed immediately into my camper. I walked over to Michael, who remained in the jeep. So what's going on with all this, I insisted. Michael eyed me. Change of plans, he said. Get in. Relax. We will now see if the jade is there. But, Jack, cut it. Ease up. Surrender and play the pawn. You've done your part. Now let us do ours. Mahi obviously isn't here yet. How could she be if she's having to hike around the border? That will take her way into the night. Then she must acquire a vehicle. She has lots of friends up there. I can feel her right now struggling in the dark. She should be here tomorrow. Meanwhile, this is my plan. Lashi will drive your van, which is almost certainly hot, over to a neighboring town tonight north of here. If there's a GPS tracker, They'll end up looking for you in a hotel parking lot. But, Jack, just do as I say. You'll then come with me to my compound and wait. That's how it is. If Mahi wants to come to you, she will. End of story. Aki, Dengolo, one of the guys in the camper shouted. Michael jumped out of the jeep and went running with an ungainly gait over to the van. A minute later, he came loping back with a leather bag in hand. As if on signal, Lashi started up my van and ground a few gears while heading out of the warehouse. Michael climbed into the jeep, fired it up, and gunned the engine, with me holding on tight during a spine-jolting ride down overgrown dirt roads and trails through a seemingly endless local jungle. The moon was now visible in the night sky. Finally, we were approaching Panahachel, and then we were driving down the congested main street where nightlife was in mid-swing. The presence of tourists and everyday people going about their frolicking lives had helped me shift into some semblance of normalcy. We drove right through town, then up a steep side road to the left that wound over a ridge and down into a small secluded canyon. 
A metal gate rolled slowly open after Michael clicked, and we roared into his high-wall compound, coming to a sliding stop in front of a quite beautiful, softly-lit wooden statue, sporting a spurt of water rising up from its top. What had once been a huge tree trunk had been carved, probably with a chainsaw and lots of sanding, to reveal a series of attached globes rising upward. I got stiffly out of the jeep and followed Michael past the watery work of art toward a big white plastered adobe building. He walked ahead, unlocked and opened a big hardwood door, then stood there to let me walk through. I stopped rather than pass him. Hey, I said right at him, how come the cold superior attitude? I don't mean to sound rude, he said back evenly, but I don't do small talk. These times require action, not chatter. You look entirely exhausted. I recommend sleep. We can start in the morning. Uh, start what? I shall need to meditate upon that question. You arriving without Mahi, this is disturbing. We now have this, he said, and raised the bag I assumed contained the jade piece. However, without Mahi present, I must reconsider the next move. But hey, I'm worried about her. Ease up, relax. She knows how to come and go from the lake. She's been doing it for years. I'm sure she met up with her old gang on the Mexican side. They'll provide her with a dirt bike and then a car on our side. These are not easy times. We simply do our best each day. Tomorrow, or day after tomorrow at the latest, she'll be here. So sleep without worry. Tomorrow shall be a full day.